Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Have you ever taken like a cake out of the oven and it's burnt and the raisins are falling off of it and you look at the picture in the recipe and then you look at your cake and you go, nailed it? Nicole Byer has been the host of Nailed It for eight seasons. It's like this bizarre kind of comedy, kind of reality baking competition. Nicole is kind of the selling point of the show, to be honest. She's lovable and affable and so, so funny. And she has some pretty great reactions to some pretty awful cakes. Let's see what you did, Tony. Nailed it. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but your princess is terrifying. She is so scary looking. And I don't think anybody's coming to rescue her. Oh no, and then your dragon got decapitated. Yes. But I love this cake so much. So so Nailed It is just one of the projects Nicole has on the go. Man, oh man, she's busy. She has four podcasts, including one called Why Won't You Date Me? She also hosts the reality show Wipeout with John Cena. She put out a, a book a few years ago. She still performs stand-up. And yeah, she still finds time to tour, which is when I talk to her. Last September, I caught up with Nicole just before her Just for Laughs show in Toronto, which was uh, happening during the writer's strike. So if we're a little vague in talking about some of these projects, uh, that explains it. Here's my conversation with Nicole Byer. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Are you good, really? I'm a little tired. I mean, I did just wake up. It is 11 a.m. and that's early for me. What did you do last (laughs) night? Last night, I went to a movie. My friends wrote a movie called Dick's the Musical. Yeah. And it's the most unhinged thing I've ever seen. And it's great. It just played here in Toronto. Everyone was talking about it. Yeah, it's great. It was a stage play at UCB that I'd seen a couple times. So to see it as a movie was wild. Was it a late night? Um, pretty late because I went to the after party. <laughs> Whoopsies. <laughs> well, I'm glad you, I'm glad I'm glad for this interview for Canada. We you got out of bed for us. I do appreciate it. <laughs> I almost didn't, but then my assistant was like, Oh, it's on camera. And I, I was like, It is, so I have to get up fully and be out of bed. She was like, Yep. <laughs> um, have you been to Canada before? Have you done done anything here before? I have been to Canada. I've been to Vancouver, Edmonton, which I love, love and everyone thinks that's weird. <laughs> no, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Oh, God, I'm getting called out on Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I also love Edmonton. I'm from a part of like the country where like a lot of people who are I'm from go to Edmonton. I like Edmonton a lot. It's you're, it, it is mm-hmm. rare for me to talk to like a, a big, big star from LA <laughs> than to be like, you know, I'm really into Edmonton. I loved Edmonton. There was this vintage store that was there that was magical and had everything I ever wanted. I don't remember the name of it, um, but I have good memories of Edmonton. I've been to Toronto, but only for a day. Why were you in Edmonton? Uh, I was doing I was doing improv, uh, and I cannot remember the theater name, um, but it was delightful. I loved it. I thought the food was good, and this vintage store was magical. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad the Edmonton vintage stores are getting a shout out. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, 
improv kind of where you got your started, right? Like improv and sketch. Oh yeah, absolutely. At the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York. Um, I met my, I guess she's my comedy partner. I don't know. We do a lot of shit together. Um, so she was a Maida. Um, and that's, we went to Canada a bunch together doing improv. Now, was it from, um, I was doing research on you yesterday. Was it from improv that you got the gig on, is it Girl Code? It was on MTV. I don't know if we got it in Canada. Girl yes. Code? Yeah. Girl Code on MTV. Um, I guess, I don't know where they saw me, but it must, it must have been at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater because I hadn't started doing stand-up yet. What was what was Girl Code? It was like a reality show? It was like a talking head show. So we would talk about things that women just didn't generally talk about openly or publicly, like periods or like the first time you fall in love or how to say I love you or sex. And um, I guess it was like for like, you know, coming of age people or young young people in their 20s or whatever. But yeah, it was just like uh, we would just tell jokes to the camera. Oh, by the way, here's a tip for the big girls. If you're trying to catch yourself a man, you got to work with the that God gave you. You got big old show off them big You got a big ass, show off that big ass. But you got to do one at a time so you don't overwhelm men. But if you got no no ass and a big old gut for days, you better paint your face real nice, be real nice, smile real hard, and stay positive. Big girl code. What do you remember about your time on that show? Um, it was fun. It was, it was, it was weird to be on a show with other people. And then you only saw them in hair and makeup. That was a weird thing for me. Um, because it was all two camera alone. So it's like you, a producer, a camera operator. Uh, I have fond memories. It was very fun. And then I worked for MTV for a while and that was also fun. There was this moment on Girl Code that, that stuck out to me when I was, when I was getting ready for this. And, um, you, you you made a joke, and I don't know. Is that is that your dog in the background? Yeah. What's your dog's name? Yeah, I, his name is Clyde. I usually do my interviews in a different room, but it flooded, so they're like, re, I'm having it redone. Oh no! I'm so happy to see Clyde. Are you can. That's Clyde. Oh, that's nice. Um, the the line you had in Girl Code that stuck out to me, and I call it a joke, but from what I understand, it wasn't fully a joke. You said something like, mm-hmm. I'm on TV, but I still babysit. Yeah, it wasn't a joke. Uh, and it's I thought it was pretty funny that they included it because I was like, you're just admitting to how cheap you guys are. Like, and again, really love the experience, really love the job. It really did give me opportunity. But I was literally on television for a full season. I think we did 20 episodes the first season. And then I still had to babysit because it was, it didn't, I think I got a thousand dollars an episode. Uh, and then the second season, I don't think it doubled or anything. I don't remember how much I got the second season. I just distinctly remember a thousand dollars for one season of television is $20,000 if you do 20 episodes and then you have to pay out your manager, uh, not my agent because it was non-union. And that's another thing. It was non-union. So we didn't get residuals. So it was like 20 flat. 10% gone, taxes gone. I, you can't live off that for a year. No. And, wh- and wh- what do you remember about that? Like, it reminds me of these conversations. I've had talks with people on this show about like, they got cast in a really big movie and they got to go to mm-hmm. Cannes. 
But they didn't have any money or they didn't get paid anything for the movie. So they couldn't afford like a dress. I think it was Demi, 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 Demi Moore said to me that when she went to France, like she needed security because mm-hmm. it was so big, but it would have to come out of her pocket and she didn't have any That's money. That's insane. You know what I mean? That's absolutely unhinged. I mean, it was just, I, I said the joke, like I, I, I mean, it wasn't a joke, but I did say it. Um, but it was, it was weird to be like recognized as I'm like pushing a stroller with a white baby. And they're like, who's that? And I'm like, not mine, obviously. Um, yeah, it, it's just, it's an interesting thing how people like to pay you in exposure and experience as opposed to like money that can change your life. You're listening to Q. My name is Tom Power, and you're in the middle of my conversation with comedian, podcaster, actor, author, and reality host, Nicole Byer. We recorded this conversation back in October of 2023, and at that time, there was a lot of conversation on this show and just throughout the entertainment industry as a whole about the writer's strike. And part of that conversation was about reality television. A lot of people speculated that because of the writer's strike, there was no better time for reality TV and I wanted to ask Nicole, who's the host of a big, you know, competition TV reality show, whether she's heard from anyone speaking up for the people who are on those reality-based shows. Here's what she had to say. Bethany Frankel has been pretty outspoken um, because she has made people millions of dollars and hasn't seen that money. She makes money with, like, other ventures. But reality television is actually really wild. Like, I feel like they pay a lot of people on reality shows, like, either stipends or I know on competition shows, people do not get paid because there's a chance to win money. Like, I don't even think they get like a per diem because they're just put up in a hotel. Um, but I I think people who aren't in the business are just like so excited at the prospect of being on camera. Like, I know every time people do Nailed It, they're all so surprised at how long we shoot, how long they're on their feet. And... I try to make it like a really great experience. So like I'm, I'm on the whole time, but it is like, it is a hard job. It is being on TV is it's hard and people don't think it's very hard. And I mean, I'm for the strike because I know how much money I made on network things before streaming really took over. And I know how much I get paid now. And I'm like, well, there's a difference. And that's only like five or six years. You had a time when you were on network shows and you were, you know, we were b- b- pre like Netflix and pre like. Well, not pre. No, sure, I, think, sure. I don't think I'm that old, but. Um, oh, but pre like. But pre know. everybody having a streaming service. And I know that my residuals were bigger then than they are now. Do you think they need, things need to change for reality performers as well in this discussion? Like, do you think they should? Yes, be, yeah? absolutely. I think I think if you do a, a season of reality television you should be able to live at least for a year. I know some people are like, well, then go get other jobs. And it's like, but they sell commercials on us. So where's that money going? They rerun it. Where's that money going? So it's just, it's it's very, it's interesting. Well, I mean, I hope you take this next question in the spirit that I mean it, which is, of course, like... Uh-oh. Uh- <laughs> By the way, nothing good has ever come from, I hope you take this question with the spirit that I mean it. It's never, it's never, why are you so great? Uh, (laughs) I can't wait. What is this question? Well, I just think about, uh, the next thing I was planning on asking you was, I mean, um, 
everything I just described is how much you do. You have all of these podcasts. You have you know you have all these shows. You're doing stand up. You're you're doing a lot. My, I was just going to ask you, like, why do you take on so much, or like, you know, what 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 is it that drives you to take on so much? The reason I was cautious is because I was wondering if there's a connection between what you were saying. Like, you just have to do a lot these days. Um, huh. I mean, in hindsight, it it is smart that I have all of these things going on because during the strike, I and then during COVID, I was able to um, still you know, make money with podcasting and stuff that wasn't in person. Um, But I started my podcast genuinely because I don't listen to podcasts, which sounds, I sound like, but like, I don't, I I don't really like just listening to conversations and stuff. But my friend was like, you're so good at talking and you're so fun. And you've been on my podcast. My friend, John Gabris, he was like, you should start your own podcast. And I was like, yeah, but what I, what would I talk about? He's like, I don't know, buy or talk about sex or something. You're like, just talk about that. You like that. And I was like, okay. And then I started doing it. And then I started really having fun with it. Welcome to another episode of Why Won't You Date Me, a podcast where me, Nicole Byer, tries to figure out how I'm still single, even though you could cut <laughs> even though you could cut up all of my clothes and say, it's now confetti. I go, okay, thank you. My guest today. And then I was like, I can do anything I want. And I, we, we don't have to just talk about sex. Like, I branched off and only interviewed people of color during the summer of 2020. And now... Now I'm just like exploring other people's love lives and not really talking about mine. Um, but it's it's just been like really fun. And then best friends with Sashir, she's my best friend. We just tee hee hee for like an hour. It's so easy and fun. And um, and then I uh, covered 90 Day Fiance with my friend Marcy. And then me and my friend Lapkus do one where we watch things that everyone has seen. Like we're doing Batman right now and it's hellish. But um, <laughs> The first Batman? We're doing all of the Batmans. Like I've never just seen watched... any of the Michael Keaton back Batmans. You know what? I didn't like them at first, but then I watched the Joel Schumacher ones, and I was like, "You these ones aren't bad." Michael Keaton was actually very good. Uh, I want to go back to there. Um, and then I do stand up. I don't know. I just I like doing. I like working specifically this job I've curated because I'm always having fun. I get on stage for an hour and I make people laugh and I hope they enjoy it and like forget about the worries in the world. And that's like really cool that I can do that. My podcast, you can listen to that for an hour and hopefully you forget about the worries with the world and you laugh. And it's very cool that I get to do that. And then it's like, I also get to act and I don't have to be me for a while. And I get to hang out with cool people. Like, I just, I don't know. I would be silly to be like, no, I don't want to do something, you know? Yeah. I find it interesting. So like, it's, it's like, you like giving people this kind of release from all the kind of stress they have in their lives. Yeah. Also, I'm having a lot of fun. Like when I wrote my book, like I wrote some of it on vacation with Sashir and we were like in bed and I was just like typing and giggling. And she was like, what are you giggling about? And I was like, I wrote something funny. And then I would like read it to her and then she would laugh. And then we would just like laugh in bed together. I just, I'm having a lot of fun. I'll be saying normal things out loud to a guy and thinking the most insane things. Out loud, I'm like, yes, you're very funny. Let's get a drink, who me? I love a taco. And then... (laughs) And then I'm thinking insane things like, why does it take you more than 30 seconds to text me back? (laughs) 
Will you ever love me more than you love your dog? <laughs> I know it's only been three months, but if you die, do I get to go to your funeral? And is that when I get to meet your mother? <laughs> that last one's not a joke. I. It takes a lot of. Um... It takes a lot of focus to do that, to, to do a lot of things. Like to do one thing takes. I have ADHD. So it's like, and all of these are tasks that never need to actually be finished. Like a stand up, like I changed my special up until I recorded it. Um, I added like a new joke the day of or the night before. Um, my podcast is like, if I have a thing that I forgot to ask somebody, I'll ask somebody else. I'll like write it down. Yeah. Um, the book was a thing that was like super, super ongoing. I changed it till the day it like, uh, it was like, you can't change it anymore. So I think my ADHD helps me. <laughs> you think your ADHD like, helps you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Just because you hyper-focus on one thing, then you hyper-focus on another thing. And then I don't know. I don't get super upset when I get like, when I don't get things because I'm like on to the next, yeah. I don't have time. My brain doesn't focus like that. When did you get diagnosed? As an adult, um, uh, maybe like six years ago, seven years ago, I think I was in my thirties or maybe it was in my twenties. It wasn't super, super long ago, but like, as soon as I was diagnosed, everything made sense. I was just about to ask you that. I've had people say that to me before that when they got diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, something clicked. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Um, I went on like this girl's trip, like a girl's writer's trip and one of the girls was like, I just, you know, found out I have ADHD and I would like leave my mail unopened and it explained why I couldn't do this or this. And I was like, oh my God, you're describing my life. Cause I would never open my mail unless it was a check. And then bills would go in one pile. And I used to like let my electricity get turned off before I would pay it because I just like forgot about it. Um, and then I would just get like frustrated with the way my brain works. Um, so she said that. And then I said to my therapist, I think I might have ADHD. And she was like, I think you also might. Um, but I didn't know if it was like affecting your life. And I said, okay. So then she set me up with a psychiatrist and then the psychiatrist talked to me pretty uninterrupted for like five or six minutes. And she was like, it's bad. And I was like, Ooh, okay. Cause I just kind of bounced around from like thing to thing. Um, and then she put me on Vivance which is time released and you can't really abuse it because it's time released. Um, and things just not the first day, but like a week into it, I was like, Oh, I'm like finishing tasks. Um, I'm like doing things. It's like, life's a little easier. What's the feeling like? Like, is it, is, is it like you have different, is it that you can like see things differently? Is it that you can? No, I'm not as annoying. So like when I'm with friends, a lot of times they'll be like, did you not take your medicine? And I'll be like, why have I said a thousand things in two minutes? Yeah. Um, but it, it just kind of, it's weird because it's a stimulant, but it calms my brain down. So it, like, I'm able to like, instead of just like making a rash choice or just being like, oh, I can't do that. I can be like, oh, okay. What are steps I have to take to like actually get this done? And I'm like, okay, uh, I can now like start that task. Cause now I understand how to start it. Um, yeah. And like the thoughts go a little slower. 
I know one of your podcasts is under the Team Coco thing. Have you ever heard Conan talk about that, that he was like resistant to go on, I think it's antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication mm-hmm. in the 90s or early 2000s because he thought yeah, that Yeah, because like, he thought it would take away his funny. And that's yeah. what I thought. But my life had gotten to the point where it wasn't unmanageable. It was just like incredibly frustrating. Like every day was frustrating. So like my keys are something I would lose every day. I would leave them in the door, leave them in my car, leave them anywhere. So then they just, I put so many keychains on them so that they were really heavy and I could hear them. Like if they fell off the table, I could hear them. Like I could just hear wherever they were. Um, And I was like, that's unmanageable. You have a brick in your purse because you keep losing your keys. Um, I still have it though, because I I get scared (laughs) of losing my keys. Um, But I also thought it was going to like take away my funding, but it hasn't. It's made it a little bit more streamlined. And sometimes I usually run jokes past people because the way my brain works, it won't quite make sense. It makes sense to me, but like not to other people. And it's gotten easier to write jokes that make sense to people. So like pre-meds, you were like, uh, pre-meds, very different than pre-med, by the way. Pre-meds, you were like, (laughs) (laughs) pre-meds, you were like, um, I'm... I got this joke and, and your friends would be like, I don't understand what, 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 what this is. Yeah. Mostly. So she would be like, what do you mean? And I'm like this. And she's like, Oh, word it like this. And okay. I'd be like, okay. I think it's good. I think it's good thing to say out loud. Cause I, when, when I started going to therapy, I was worried that like whatever weird magic and alchemy and like, strange happenstance that got me this job. I was like, oh, I, well, that seems so tenuous to me. Like, mm-hmm. it seems like none of this should have happened. And it must be whatever I was is wrong with me is what's yeah. keeping me here. So I don't want to fix what's wrong with me because <laughs> it's got it's got me. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But the more I do therapy, the more I've been medicated, the more I'm like, we're all still f***ed up. It's just... Instead of being like 50-50, maybe you're like 60-40 or 70-30. 70 is good, 30 is bad. I don't think anyone's ever like running at like 99%. But it's like if you could make your life slightly easier, slightly better, and make yourself slightly happier, why wouldn't you do that? That's nice. Feels like a good approach to like a New Year's resolution. More of my conversation with comedian, podcaster, actor, author, and reality host Nicole Byer coming up. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Tom Power, you're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Nicole Byer. Nicole's been really gracious in talking about how ADHD has affected every aspect of her life, even the way she phrases a joke. It made me ask her about what her life was like growing up in New Jersey, which led to, and I never thought I'd ever say this sentence in my entire life, a pretty funny story about dealing with the death of both of her parents. 
Here's the rest of my conversation with Nicole Byer. As a kid, were you into performing? Like, as a kid, were you the kind of kid jumping up in front of other people? And I was the loudest child you could imagine. Um, I just loved talking. I loved just, I loved attention. Um, and then I didn't start performing until high school. My mother was like, you are so loud and you talk so much. Why don't you go do the school play? And then I did the play and it was one of those like participation trophy plays. It wasn't just like a play. It was selected scenes by a playwright named Christopher Durang who did um, short like one acts. So like everyone who auditioned got in and I did this scene called DMV Tyrant, which is very, very funny. And DMV Tyrant, like at the motor mm -hmm. vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a lady who like wasn't helpful right? Um, in the funniest way possible. And I remember that first laugh and I was like, this, this is what I want all the time because this is the, this is the maximum amount of attention you can get. People have sat down to watch just you. And I was like, this is everything I've ever wanted. Um, Do you remember the line that got you the laugh? No, I don't. Oh. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was like the first line of the, the one act. Um, but yeah, get, it was And you get very, it and you're like, addictive. okay, wow, everyone's looking at me and everyone's laughing at me. Yeah. This, feel, this feels really incredible. And it's like, I did that. I made them laugh. Um, and then I was like, well, I have to go to theater school. I have to become a thespian. Um, so that's what I did. I went to a two-year conservatory uh, under the guise that I would then go get my degree. Didn't do it. <laughs> Didn't do it. Didn't do it. No, no, no. Couldn't do it. Was the, was, did you want to be like a really serious actor? Did you want to be? I did. I did. I wanted to do Broadway. One of my favorite shows is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I want to do Martha so bad. Party, party. Mm, I'm really looking forward to this, Martha. Don't answer the door. You answer it. Get to that door, you. But yeah, I wanted to do Broadway. I wanted to do plays. Um, but then I just found comedy. I found, so we did like improv as a means to get to the truth of the scene. Um, but then after school, I kind of like around the city for a while. I worked at Lane Bryant, which is one of the worst jobs I've ever had. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a fat lady store. It's a, uh -huh. or a plus size store, however people want to say it. Um, in America, in the States. Yeah, I guess they don't have one in Canada. Now watch now. I'm going to get an email that says, yes, we do. But I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you're not shopping there. Who cares? Okay, okay. Um, but then I found UCB after I worked there. And then I was like, oh, you can just do an improv show and you don't have to like get to the truth of the scene. And then I was like, I want to, I want to do that. And it's funny because a lot of people are like, oh, I, I want to try doing that. I truly was like, oh, I can do that. Like, let me let me take a class. Let me figure this out. And then I started taking classes and then started performing at the theater pretty quickly and then was put on the sketch team. And then, yeah, I just love comedy. Eventually, I do want to do, like, serious stuff. Um, but I really just love comedy right now. I read this thing, and, and, and Nicole, this is a pre-taped interview, so we don't got to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. Um, but I read this thing that... Um, and I'm curious about this because I have a, I can relate to you on on this. I know that you lost your parents young, um, young youngish, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sixteen and twenty-one. Oh, jeez, I was uh, twenty-four for my dad. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sucks. Young adult, like you're not five. Yeah, but it's it's enough that like 
everyone around you still has a parent and you're the odd person out. Yeah. Even now, like <laughs> even now with some of my parents, like my friends, their parents are getting older and I'm like, still, you still have. Yeah. You <laughs> still have a parent. Well, isn't that nice for you? <laughs> I should say my mom is listening. And the, the point being, <laughs> um, the, the, did, did performing, did art, did any of this stuff help with, with that? Yeah. My mom died when I was in high school and I was like in the play at the time. So it was nice that like, I didn't have to be me for like an hour after school. And then my dad died um, while I was taking improv classes. So it's like, okay, so improv class, I don't have to be me. I can be an elephant for a half hour or whatever. So I think it was helpful in that way. It was like, it wasn't so much that like, oh, hey, I found a community and I found a family and I found, it was like, I got. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just have to be me for a little bit. (laughs) You got to take it. Yeah. I guess after you said it, yes, I did find a community. I found like really, really great people. Like I'm still friends with one of my dear friends who was in uh, one of the plays with me in high school. Um, I met my best friends to share. I met so many great people from UCB. So yeah, I guess it, it, it was also the community. Sure. But that's, that's, that's by the way, <laughs> dead on impression of me. The, uh, <laughs> the, um, I love that idea that you, when you go through something really tragic and you go through something really sad, sometimes, you know, people want to talk to you about it and they want, they want you to talk about it and they want, you know, there's this idea that you want to get into it and sort of live in it. But it's nice to be able to get an hour or two to mm-hmm. be somebody else, to completely escape it and sort of live in another world. Yeah, because nobody tells you how much work it is after somebody dies. It's like you have to make a thousand phone calls. And then everyone's like, oh, sorry for your loss. Or like, are they actually dead? And you're like, yes. Like, well, we need to see a death certificate. It's like, why would I lie? (laughs) Is that true? Yeah. So like me and my sister, because my mom had passed away. So we were selling my dad's estate. Um, He also didn't submit her death certificates to anything. So like, then they'd be like, well, your mother's next to Kim. We're like, well, she's dead too. And they're like, prove it. Like, (laughs) And then, so it's... (laughs) When you deal with <laughs> nobody makes it easy or nice after somebody dies. Like, sorry for your loss. We don't believe you. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad they got the meanest people in the world working in that job for you, by the way. There were <laughs> these people, the most suspicious, angry people, and they were like, let's put yeah. them in let's put them in bereavement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like my sister who at the time was I was 21, so she was 22 or 23, but she has a very, like, high-pitched, she sounds like a kid, so she'd be like, I'm sorry, um, here's the stuff that you need, and they'd be like, huh, is this kid trying to scam us? Like, it's it was so wild. What, what a rough scam that is, by the way. Like, what, a, <laughs> what a cruel scam. Um, this is something that we were talking about with regards to you and your and your comedy yesterday. We were talking about how you're so reactive in a really funny way like when you're when you're talking to other people you're so funny with them and when you're on nailed it and you have these like kind of clueless bakers you're so funny with them and when you're on your podcast you have other people with you and you're so and you're so funny with them and even in improv you were talking to me about it's such a it's such a you know energy you're feeding off other people's energy Mm -hmm. and other ideas from them when you're on stage by yourself how do you find that like how do you find that having to generate it from you um, well, I've had people be like, oh, you really love laughing at your own jokes. And I'm like, yeah, I think they're very funny. That's why I'm saying them. <laughs> and 
everything I say on stage is like something that I thought of and laughed really hard at. And I was like, Oh, I gotta say that on stage. Um, or like a story that like, I was like, maybe this will be fun. And then you find the fun on stage. Um, I, I like performing. I like making people laugh. Um, I will say there was a point in like 2019, I'd been on the road for, I don't know, maybe a year or so, like every weekend I was doing five shows a weekend, like doing club after club. And I was so burnt out that I could still perform and it was still a good show. But like, if someone heckled or like said something, I would like lose my mind. I'd be like, I'm, I prepared this. I rehearsed it. And then I was like, and then I stopped for a while. COVID happened. And when I started getting back out there, I was like, oh yeah, people are trying to have fun. Sure. You don't interrupt a show, but if you do, you can have fun with it. So I'm not saying like shout at me at shows, but <laughs> I I did find the joy again of like actually performing in front of live people where I was just so burnt. But now, now I'm like, anything could happen. I don't know. I can say anything. They can say anything. I'm less rigid with it. Um, but I guess I find it like the joy. I think that the answer is, I think is really funny and I want you to laugh and uh also I can like make myself laugh like I'll just be alone in my room and be like <laughs> like the other day <laughs> I like ran a red light by accident and then I started screaming I gotta get my pizza because I was rushing home to get my pizza <laughs> and then I just started laughing so hard just alone in my car running this red light screaming I gotta get my pizza so like I just I have fun all the time I had a guy the other day, uh, he did the funniest thing I've ever seen anyone in a car do. I was driving and go through an intersection and he cut me off and I was so mad. Like I was so mm -hmm. mad that he cut me off and I looked at him and he rolled down the window and went, shh. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. That's really funny. Hey, listen, so nice to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. You're, you're, a, you're, a, I love talking to you. Thank you. I honestly really love talking, specifically to you, but also in general. <laughs> so that's the repeat of that. We've aired that conversation once before. Since then, I've had so many people come up to me and reference that story about that person cutting me off in traffic and going, shh. So if you're listening to this and you were that person, Thanks. Nicole Byer is a comedian, podcaster, actor, author, and reality host. She's up for an Emmy in the Outstanding Host for a Reality or Competition Program category for her work on the Netflix series Nailed It. You can catch the Emmy Awards on January 15th. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I don't know if you're watching uh, the show Son of a Critch. It's a, it's a show on um, CBC uh, based on the real-life story of the Canadian comedian Mark Critch growing up in St. John's, Newfoundland. Wait for it. I can't imagine what that's like. Anyway, in it, Mark plays his father, Mike Critch, who was this really important and really well-known newscaster back home in Newfoundland. But, like, can you imagine getting older and then in a role in a TV show, playing your father or like playing your parent? What emotions might that bring up? So the first episode of the new season is available now on CBC Jam. Mark came on to talk about a scene in this season 
from his real life that was quite formative to him and his dad. Here's Mark Rich. Congrats on the new season, by the way. I got to watch the first uh, two or three episodes and I really loved it. How are you feeling about it? I think this is our best year yet. Um, I think uh, everybody's really gelled as a team, which is great. And the performers really feel comfortable together. So they're able to take even more chances in the performance, which leads to some beautiful moments and some hilarious moments. And um, it's getting into those older years now. Yeah. Last year, junior high. So it's kind of bigger stakes for their characters. So yeah, for people who don't know, who haven't seen it yet, Son of a Critch is based on your life growing up in, in St. John's in the in the 80s and the 90s. And in this season, as you mentioned, uh, the character's a little bit older because they're playing you, who's a little bit older now, and you start getting interested in performing in this season. So we're going to talk about one specific moment uh, uh, today in the show. Tell me a little bit about the moment we're talking about today. Like, it, It's your first time doing solo comedy? Yeah, well, it was a sketch comedy cabaret night we put together. I was 15 years old, and I what uh, people on the mainland might call played hooky from school, and right. I would say pipped off back home. And so I lied and escaped from the nuns and went to the LSP Hall, which was a cabaret night, 11.30 at night with liquor being sold, and you had to be 19 and stuff. I was 15, did this impression of my father along with other things, uh, and all the news folk at VOCM, the radio station where he worked, wore these bright red jackets with a golden VOCM logo crest, which dad thought of as a, a policeman's uniform, kind of, you know, and uh, I had taken it to do an impression of my dad, who everybody knew, and it killed. And dad happened to be there and he got very upset and uh, said, like, good God, I could be fired. You're impersonating a news reporter. And I'm like, I don't think that's a thing. So, uh, yeah, he was um, uh, mortified. But, and also more so mortified that I was wearing his coat that, that I was like in a bar underage. Right, right. <laughs> more more than he was upset that you were like p- pipping off from school at 1130 at night around people drinking. He was upset that you were <laughs> defiling the news reporter's blazer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for for people who don't know your dad, I, I give a bit of context here. Like I, I know your dad, a legendary figure in in Canadian broadcasting. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about him. Well, uh, dad was a uh, he uh, he was much older. He'd be a hundred and four, I think, this year if he had lived, and uh, no, one hundred two, and. He um, started off in ra- in news and in, in uh, newspapers, and he actually covered Confederation when Newfoundland joined Canada uh, for the Daily News. And he had worked with the uh, Americans when they had bases here during the war. Took around Frank Sinatra and stuff. It was all very exciting. And then he settled into this radio uh, job at VOCM, where he kept his towny accent. A lot of uh, reporters would try and cover their thick accent, but Dad kind of spoke like late last night, early this morning, that kind of a thing. But listeners really loved that about it. And he was embarrassed the first time he went on the air, didn't want to do it again. And then all the people called in and wrote in and said, oh my God, I love that guy. And so he became this sort of Walter Winchell kind of character in Newfoundland and Labrador, always reporting on the crime in a place where there wasn't that much crime, but he would play <laughs> things up. One time a guy uh, robbed a uh, Mary Brown's fried chicken outlet and the cops found him by following a trail of chicken bones. He would eat it and throw it <laughs> over his shoulder. And dad said, uh, the culprits were apprehended when members of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary follow the trail of denuded chicken bones. It's like, <laughs> it didn't need to say denuded, but he would try. So so uh, the, you brought along a clip from Son of a Critch. So this is, uh, I, this is, takes a little time to set up here. This is you but you in the show, played by uh, Benjamin Evan Ainsworth, playing you doing an impression of your dad. Take a listen to this. 
Late last night. Early this morning, a moose was struck on a Trans-Canada Highway. The name of the moose has not yet been released, but the suspect vehicle is described as a brown and tan Chevette with a moose on it. Two men killed? One seriously. This is Mike Critch for the VOCM News Service. So that's a clip from Son of a Critch. That's Benjamin Evan Ainsworth playing young Mark Critch, doing an impression of his dad, <laughs> Mike Critch. And am I right? You you have the, like, we have it here, the actual clip of you doing that, right? Yeah, so we did the show, and there's a wonderful uh, artist and, and photographer and videographer, good pal of Rick Mercer's at the time, who'd hang out around in these places and often record these shows. And so a little while ago, he sent me on Facebook, uh, Patty Barry. Was it Patty Barry? I was just about to say, was it Patty Barry? Brilliant Patty Barry. Uh, and he sent me, he said, by the way, I got to tape your show. And he sent me this tape, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a amazing so uh yeah so it's it's real me at that age doing that same bit it's, it's kind of hard to hear but we'll play a little bit of it take a listen mark what do you what what, what do you remember feeling when you did that I remember like, so this is, you dreamt of, you know, doing stand-up comedy or sketch comedy and, you know, my heroes, uh, Greg Malone, Tommy Sexton of Codco and Wonderful Grand Band, they had performed and started at the LSBU Hall. So I thought, I guess you just go down there and do a show. So we talked him into letting us do this show and we walked out as a weird mix of like people we kind of knew, people in the art seat, and then like some sailors off a boat who saw the word cabaret and thought it would meant something completely differently. <laughs> uh, and uh, and anyway, so I had dad's red coat and I walked out and the spotlight came on. I did it. And we got I got that big laugh because they recognized him. And then it kept going. And I was like, oh, my God, is, this is like happening. It's real. And yeah, you, as I had written something, I'd gone down there. Someone had paid money and now I was performing it and they laughed. So I had done it. I'd unlocked this level. I was a comedian now and I was very excited. And then uh, I, 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 it was just pure adrenaline, you know? What, what, like, what made you want to do that impression of, you, of your father? Because I knew people had done impressions of dad. And um, I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I had always been doing it, you know? So you're trying out things uh, for the first time on stage. And this is something I had done making fun of him almost in a defense mechanism. People would make fun of you at school saying, Hey, your father's on the radio. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do this impression of him. And then they go, ha ha. So you wouldn't get beaten up. And so I had this and I figured, well, I'll fill a minute doing this. Cause we had all these other sketches and stuff. And then that really took off. And because people recognize it. And in some ways I'm still doing, well, I'm clearly doing the same thing. I'm still playing my father, but whether it's dad or Donald Trump or what have you, I'm doing impressions of people in power that, uh, that, you know, to try and mock them a little bit because people know who they are. And so I, I did this. It was very weird. And I remember that moment, dad being very upset, right. But still, even though he was upset and, and knowing I'd gotten busted, I still kind of was still in this glow and I, it was fine. It's okay. I'll take whatever punishment. And then we're filming and I'm dressed as my dad yelling at Benjamin, who's dressed at me because I was dressed as my dad back when I was me. And it was really surreal. And I thought at that moment, I was like, surely to God, it would be cheaper to just go to therapy. You well, know? that's what I wanted to get at because, and excuse me for CBC in this up a little bit. <laughs> there's, there's something to that, that you're 
your dad, you did an impression of your dad, and he was upset about, um, you know, you impersonating a VOCM reporter. But I'm sure it was also just kind of weird for him to have his kid. I think he was maybe a bit hurt. Looking back, see, that's the thing about this. When I'm when I was a kid, I have all these memories that mean something to me, and. But your memories are kind of selfish things, right? Because it's your point of view of something. But now in this weird gift of being able to play my father in that moment, I'm looking at it as an actor and I go, oh, I see. He was hurt. He, he went in and I'd lied to him about where I was and everything. But he walked in and his son was making fun of him and everyone was laughing. And he wouldn't have thought, well, this was a tribute, which is what it was, which is what this whole show is, right? But in that moment, I, I could see now he was hurt. And later he came around to it and stuff, you know, and he was very proud. But in that moment, I think you walk in, your son's making a mockery of you on stage. And uh, I, I guess he he was, yeah, he was it, yeah I could, I, looking back, I, could, I saw anger when I was a kid, but now I can see hurt in his eyes in my memories. So, so what is that like for you, man, to like, to, Im- I mean, that's crazy, to embody your dad who you kind of annoyed by doing an impression of him, what turned out to be like a supervillain origin story for you, but yeah. you get to play your dad reacting to it. What is that like for you? Well, the back end of that scene, we're driving away uh, in in a VOCM uh, vehicle uh, driven by a DJ, and I'm saying, "Oh my God, the height of ignorance," which is dad. What dad would always say to me when when I had embarrassed him or something or done something. He said, "Good God, the height of ignorance on television, mocking the prime minister," you know, and. <laughs> I, I said, and in it, young Mark says, but dad, I, I, I wanted everyone to like me. And that's why I wanted, I knew it. if I did you, everyone would like you because everybody loves you, dad. And I, me as dad kind of looks out the window, kind of, you know, with a little tear in the eye. But that was true. It was like, I, everyone loved dad and everyone knew dad. Everywhere I went, people were like, oh my God, you're Mike Critch's son. Or, oh my God, are you Mike? Oh, Mr. Critch, you know? And uh, and so I just do it be kind of a free pass, you know, and, a, and kind of a way say like, I'm the Julian Lennon of Newfoundland here, uh, folks. Uh, give me a free pass in a way. Um, so yeah, it, it it was a really, that was the weirdest one all year, maybe of the season for me, because it was such a visceral, real memory. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Mark, thanks for being here. Congrats on the new season. Uh, thank you so, so, so much. I feel like that is a form of therapy. Like, I feel like if we had the resources, we should all have a moment where we like dress up as, <laughs> dress up as our parents and deal with an actor who was playing us as a child. That was my conversation with Mark Critch. His show, Son of a Critch, airs Tuesdays on CBC Jam and on CBC Television in Canada on Tuesdays at 8.30 p.m., 9 p.m. in Newfoundland and parts of Labrador. The show airs in the United States on The CW. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Calgary's Jeff McFetridge is not a household name, but I bet you've come across his work, maybe in a gallery or on your Apple Watch or on your shoes. Jeff McFetridge has done this incredible balancing act throughout his career, whether it's working with the Beastie Boys, Sofia Coppola, and all these big brands. Jeff McFetridge will tell you how he keeps his integrity as an artist while doing these big corporate jobs. That's tomorrow on the show. If you want to get in touch with the show, q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. If you want to uh, reach me, yeah, q at cbc.ca. I'm not on Instagram this month, so that's the best way to do that too. All right, we'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.